We're looking at a variety of passages today, so I'm, I've put them all on the screen for you. Um, and we're going to start actually with some history first. Uh, back in 1920, in fact, in the 1920s, uh, there was a man named Lenin who had risen to power in the Soviet Union. And during that time, there would be a young boy named Pavlik Morozov who would become legend. Legend because we know, we're fairly certain anyway, that Pavlik Morozov existed. The exact details of his life are up for debate. But what the general consensus is, uh, what I'll share with you this morning. Uh, Pavlik Morozov represents what I believe to be an example of a history of generational conflict and failure. And in his story particularly, uh, you see a picture of him here on the, on the right side of the screen is a sketch. On the left side is what some believe could actually be Pavlik. You could see the likeness uh, who's standing with other children in one of Lenin's Soviet youth programs. Now, under Lenin's administration, what, what, what he and other communists realized is that one of, the, one of the most effective ways they determined they could advance their agenda is if they could undermine generational relationships, if they could make, create division between older and younger. Now, the truth is, some of this was already occurring before Lenin came into power. And there was a woman in his administration uh, who, whose, whose name, and I'll give much more information about her in a podcast that will be kind of a follow-up to today's message that will be released later this week. I'd encourage you to tune into that. But this woman actually is known historically as perhaps the first woman to hold parliamentary-level government position in history of like the civilized world, recent, recent eras. And she was a Soviet working with Lenin. She wrote an article called Communism in the Family. And in that article, she articulated what they were already observing about Western capitalistic nations. And some of what she observed was true. Basically, the gist is this, that under capitalism and free markets, something called the Industrial Revolution took off. And around that time, a new style of life was being offered to Westerners, previously unheard of and unseen. The catch was for most families to have all that life would offer, it would require both mom and dad to work. Two income households. Now the trade-off there was that there really wasn't much left for the family to produce materially. It was all being made in the factories now. No need to make clothes. We have factories for those. No need to make candles or waxes. We have factories for those. And so there was an open door to become a two-income household. Now, this is not a, a rebuke or an affirmation of a two-income household. I live in one. It's a fact. This occurred under capitalistic free market societies and a deterioration of the family unit. The family unit was spending less time together. And, and this, so there was a host of societal problems because of that. The Soviets would come along and say, hey, communism didn't break up the family, capitalism did. Now the reality is communism and capitalism are two man-made ideas. Capitalism, I would, ha I would argue, has some better features. But decoupled from scripture can be devastating. And the Soviets saw some of that devastation. And so their diagnoses were correct. The family has begun to break down. Their remedies were nefarious. They saw a golden opportunity to divide the generations against each other. And in this article, she would say this. We must do two things. We must liberate women from dependency upon their husbands. One of the things the Soviets were the first introduced was no-fault divorce. And under that situation, the, the, the time it would take to achieve a divorce and what was required uh, became much more efficient and broad. So liberate women from dependency upon their husbands. Then they said, step two, liberate parents from the burden of their children. And so they instituted state-run schools and youth initiatives, which Pavlik Morozov would become, I would argue, a victim of one. 
But understand, the division had begun already. The Soviets learned how to capitalize on it. And through these Soviet initiatives, children like Pavlik Morozov would become loyalists to the motherland, dedicated to the cause. Older generations, a little bit more skeptical of what the cause really was, but the relationship had been broken. So what's the result? Pavlik Morozov's father was accused of withholding a portion of wheat that belonged to the state. The way the story goes, that the reason he was doing that was to sell that wheat to people in his own village at a lower cost than the state would charge. Seems admirable. The problem is it was illegal. Pavlik Morozov was the primary witness in his dad's trial. He testified against him. His father was found guilty, taken off to the gulags, never to be seen again, and presumed dead. Shortly thereafter, people in the village, in Pavlik's village, hunted him down in the woods and murdered him. This boy. The person leading the charge for his murder? His own grandfather. That's the result of generational division. And you know what? Lenin got all he needed. Pavlik became a martyr of the Soviet cause. Statues erected all over the Soviet Union. Children would come to see him as a hero. And you know all they would have to say? And you know who killed you, your hero? Those old people. That's all they needed. What Lenin underestimated was that no society can thrive for long if the generations are divided. It's unsustainable. And eventually we would see its collapse. But it wouldn't stop others from following in his footsteps. The man standing at the center of the photograph on your right, surrounded by all of these children, is Adolf Hitler. He would take Lenin's methods and improve upon them. Others would come later. But the truth is, this didn't start in the 1920s. Open up your Bibles, and you'll find a king, a king that I would rather call a tyrant named Nebuchadnezzar, who did the same. He had his own youth programs, did he not? Daniel caught up in one. It's an age-old scheme. The reason I believe that's the case is it's Satan's scheme. The trick is not to find ourselves complicit in it. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. How do we not repeat history? Those who fail to learn from history are what? Doomed to repeat it. And repeat it we did. Let me share with you how. I'm going to summarize, do something very dangerous. I'm going to summarize four books in about 10 minutes. In 2005, a book called Battle Cry for a Generation was published, written by a man named Ron Luce. Ron started off his books uh, talking about uh, a, a girl who was in a car accident, and she was trapped inside, her car caught on fire. There was a man on the scene who saw what was unfolding, and at the risk of his own safety, did what it took to get her out of the car and saved her life. Someone came up and interviewed him afterwards and said, what prompted you to do such a thing at a risk to your own life? He simply said, the car was on fire. Ron Lewis would say, looking at the generation of children in 2005, mark your calendars, right? What generation is he talking about? Millennials. 2005, Ron would say this, People, the car is on fire, and the youth of America are trapped inside. Suicide, abortion, alcohol, drug abuse, and violence are the fiery flames licking at the wreckage of many young lives. The stakes are staggering. We have in America today 33 million teenagers, the largest group of teens since World War II. Do you realize that? This generation has the potential to impact our nation economically, politically, spiritually, with every bit as much force as the baby boomers have. These young people are our sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, grandsons and granddaughters, nieces and nephews. They are the future of America. We've got to get them out. Whatever it takes, we've got to get them out. Now, 
This is roughly the time I entered ministry, working with students. This is one of the first books I read after becoming a full-time pastor. And I'm part of the failure with this generation. Technically, a millennial myself, but the oldest variety. <laughs> In fact, uh, someone came up to me after the first service and said, apparently they've coined a term for those of us who are at the oldest end of the millennial spectrum. We are geriatric millennials. <laughs> Thank you. But brothers and sisters, what I saw unfolding in my, before my eyes then, I didn't know what to do with and I didn't know how to articulate. That may sound like an excuse, but looking back 15 years later, I think I have some ideas. You see, generational division exists even today. Forget about 2005. But these kids have grown up, right? Are they not now in positions of power? Are they not now the ones you regularly see on your Twitter feeds, wielding influence, crafting legislation, deciding what to do with your social security? They've grown up and they have ideas. And by and large, ideas not strongly tethered to the word of God. But the mistake we've made is placed all the blame on them. We birthed them. These millennials, you know, that term, that term that used to de describe a person's age suddenly became a way to dismiss them. Millennial became a criticism, a bad thing to be. Imagine how a whole generation of people felt then that by virtue of their age, they were not to be heard. Oh, they responded. You know how they responded? Okay, boomer. And that's not a compliment. We're dismissing each other. I'll give you two recent examples. Very quickly. I'm going to bring up one, and it's going to be trigger for many of you. COVID. COVID-19 hit in 2020. You know what's interesting is at the beginning of the whole thing, go back and look it up. At the beginning of the whole thing, older generations were the ones alarmed and concerned. By and large. Younger generations could not have cared less. News headlines were about these college frat parties at their parents' homes. And reporters would say, don't you care about the lives of your parents and grandparents? And the kids would be like, live and let live, man. We're here to party. What changed? COVID-19 became political. Is there any more reason why politics and medicine should not mix? But it did. Interesting. When it became political, older generations, by and large, suddenly became less concerned. Younger generations, much more so. Ask any one of them. And I guarantee you, Many of them you ask, just on the street, at the store, they'll take it more seriously. I have some in my own family that we encountered quite recently, could not believe we weren't taking it more seriously ourselves. Generational division. You understand that's a symptom. The response to COVID was a symptom of an underlying problem. There's a generational divide. To the point where you know what the news headlines were, there was an instance where a college student who was at home notified authorities on their own parents for hosting an in-home Bible study in violation of COVID protocol. You don't think it could be you? Generational division. How about one uh, much more trivial but more funny? Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Now, when they came over to the United States from good old England, and they went on their press circuit, right? And they had the big Oprah Winfrey interview, the sit down. How did the generations respond? By and large, older generations were like, this is hogwash. Why is this making so much attention? Didn't we fight a revolutionary war to get away from these people? Here we are talking about them. You like my like old man voice, right? <laughs> 
How did young people respond? They're speaking truth to power. Meghan Markle, this, is a, this took courage and bravery. She saw this corruption and darkness inside the palace and she's bringing light to it. It's a symptom. There's division. He would go on to say, 71 million millennials, 33 million now in their teens, hold our future in their hands. This is 2005, everybody. Just keep that in mind. Our national destiny is linked to this new generation. Try to imagine a society that mocks the fact that under God was ever even in our Pledge of Allegiance. Try to imagine the motto, in God we trust, taken off our money. Imagine all references to Christ and his cross removed from all emblems and city logos. Try to imagine a world where a pastor can go to jail for saying homosexuality is wrong. If we think Christians are being persecuted and maligned now in the United States, imagine being the laughingstock of society. Is this the price we must pay for neglecting to build a solid biblical framework into the hearts of our children and our children's children? I'm simply saying it's the price we're paying. We missed the opportunity. And we have to own that. God is still at work with millennials. But statistically speaking, we missed them all. In 2006, Josh McDowell would release a book called The Last Christian Generation. He says, I realize the title of this book may be shocking, but the decision to call this The Last Christian Generation was not made lightly, nor was it done for sensationalism. I sincerely believe unless something is done now to change the spiritual state of our young people, you will become the last Christian generation. It's not that churches and Christian families haven't recognized that we're losing our young people and haven't tried to do something about it. During the 1970s and 1980s, significant numbers of Christian parents began removing their children from the public school system in an attempt to salvage their kids. The hope was that a Christian school education would somehow undergird their children with a biblical worldview. Today, there are over 12,000 Christian schools in the United States, but what are the results? And interestingly enough, in other books and research done, homeschooling, Christian homeschooling fared about the same as what I'm about to show you. But as part of this effort, a commission was uh, begun with a group called the Nehemiah Institute, and they crafted a survey called, or an assessment called peers testing. And they administered it in thousands of Christian schools across the nation. The results, while these students scored slightly higher than their counterparts attending public schools, only 6% of students embraced a biblical theism worldview. It is clear we have all but lost our young people to a godless culture. 2006. In 2007, a guy by the name of David Kinnaman would release his book called Unchristian, which was based off of research he did with what he called outsiders, uh, millennials who did not profess to be Christ followers. And he says this, one outsider from Mississippi made this blunt observation, Christianity has become bloated with blind followers who would rather repeat slogans than actually feel true compassion and care. Christianity has become marketed and streamlined into a juggernaut of fear-mongering that has lost its own heart. His assessment, Christianity has an image problem. Every Christ follower bears some degree of responsibility for the image problem, for things we can influence, our lives, our churches, the way we express Christianity to others. I hope that by helping you better understand people's skepticism, your capacity to love people will increase offering them genuine hope and real compassion through Jesus Christ. Paul, the most prominent writer of the New Testament, says, while knowledge may make us feel important, it is love that really builds up the church. I'll skip this one. The fourth, <clears throat> the fourth of four books released over the course of nine years came out in 2009. Its author would state the following, I dare you. I dare you to try it this Sunday. Look to the right and look to the left. While the pastor delivers his message, while the worship team sings their songs, look at the children and look at the teens around you. Many of them will be familiar faces. They are the faces of your friends, sons, and daughters. They are your children, the ones who have been faithfully following you to church for years. Now imagine that two-thirds of them have just disappeared. Yes, look to the left and look to the right this Sunday. Put down your church bulletin or your phone. 
Look at those kids and imagine that two-thirds of them aren't even there. Why? Because they're already gone. 2005, the car's on fire. 2009, they're gone. That's how quick it happens. The author of that book, Ken Ham, bearing the same title. Now, Ken Ham's like one of our people, right? I hear him talked a lot about around our church for good reasons. Good conservative guy, great principles, solid understanding of scripture. So what does he make of this? Well, Ken would go on to say, what is the number one perception of the Christian church today? No matter how you slice it, it's always come down to one word, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy has far more to do with honesty including one's approach to the Bible itself, and transparency than it does being perfect. That is as good of a definition of hypocrisy as I've seen. We need to understand what it means when a young person accuses adults of being hypocritical. What they're saying is, I don't know if I'm seeing a lot of honesty in how you approach the Bible or transparency in your life where you're falling short. He would say, not coincidentally, 20-somethings who have never been to church at all voice the same criticism. David Kinnaman, hey, wait, that's the book we just quoted from, notes this in his book, Unchristian, what a new generation really thinks about Christianity and why it matters. In part, he discovered these, possessions, these perceptions. Now listen, brace yourself. None of these are going to be easy to hear, but folks, we need to hear what's going on. We need to learn from what happens so that we can make the adjustments we need to make so that we don't repeat the same mistake. Number one, Christians say one thing but live something entirely different. Two, Christians are insincere and concerned only with converting others. Three, Christians show contempt for gays and lesbians. Number four, Christians are boring, unintelligent, old-fashioned, and out of touch with reality. Fifth, Christians are primarily motivated by a political agenda and promote right-wing politics. Six, Christians are prideful and quick to find fault in others. Now you might be thinking, well, that's what that David Kinnaman guy said. What does Ken Ham think about all that? Well, you have to admit that there is an element of truth in many of these critical perceptions. How many of our defense mechanisms are just going crazy right now? We have to own it. We have to own that we missed something. The question is, what is it? They do talk about solutions, these guys, and I don't have time to get into them all, but the one I'll share with you is from Josh McDowell's book. One of the things he recommends is a greater emphasis on what he calls intergenerational discipleship, bringing older people and younger people together again. He says this, we live in an age of two wage earner households in which young people spend mere minutes a day in meaningful conversation with their parents. Gone is the day when extended family members sat around the fireplace interacting with each other. Catch this, 55 years ago, some 60 to 70%, 60 to 70% of all households included at least one live-in grandparent. Today, less than two 2% of households benefit from that resource. Intergenerational activity has virtually become a thing of the past, and we as a culture are experiencing the consequences. We have lost the benefit of wisdom coupled with love that comes from regular contact with grandparents. As a result, we miss the sense of heritage and connectedness and continuity with the past that intergenerational contact provides. Unfortunately, contact is not only lacking between kids and grandparents, but also between kids and their parents. The hectic schedules and expectations of our culture conspire to minimize contact even between adjacent generations. This causes most of our youth today to feel disconnected and alienated from an adult world. And unless we correct this, we as adults will be unsuccessful in our attempts to instill our faith and values into the next generation. Now, hear this. He says, values don't tend to root solidly when they are merely taught. They must be, you know it, caught. Like a good infection from constant contact with loved and respected people who are the carriers. Intergenerational ministry is nothing more than a ministry that brings adults, children, and youth together and teaches them how to interact and learn spiritual formation processes from each other. We need each other. We can learn from each other. There's value in this, age-old value. 
that we'll see here in a moment. Over those 15 years or so that I've been doing vocational ministry, I've observed two different things, and you might want to take note of this. I think there are, there are three reasons that older generations struggle to engage younger generations well. And it's because of this. Children challenge three things in our life. They challenge our comfort. They challenge our convictions. And they challenge our competence. They challenge our comfort, our convictions, and our competence. And you know, the truth is, we don't like being challenged in any of those areas, right? So what's the, what have I seen unfold as part of the solution? Three additional things, three additional words I would encourage you to note. If you want to be part of the solution, it's going to take these three things. Number one, initiative. Second, integrity. And third, investment. Initiative, integrity, and investment. We'll flesh out what that means here. So the legend of Pavlik Morozov and the legacy of tyrants looms large. And what we've now learned, secondly, is about the tragic yet avoidable loss of an entire generation called millennials. And it's so tragic because it was so avoidable. It didn't have to be this way. But here we are, so what do we do? Ken Ham would ultimately uh, suggest that our solution, this is gonna, this, this is gonna blow your mind, right? He says, we need to come back to the word of God. I'm joking. Of course, that's the solution. So let's do that then. What is our biblical responsibility to the next generation? Deuteronomy 6 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So number one, it's to impress the love of God on their hearts. That's our job. That's our responsibility. Secondly, I believe Titus completes the picture by saying this in chapter two, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, older men in the room, listen up. You are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, this is for you, likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Older folks, show yourself in all respects to be a model. That's the key word there. Model of good works in your, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. We have to model it if we are to really teach it. So what do I suggest is the way forward and the choice we need to make? I'm going to go back again to history to a guy named Augustine who talked about an idea called rightly ordered loves. Now listen, this is very Augustinian because it's very wordy. So stick with me here and I trust it'll make sense. He said this, but living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. Now listen, for what it's worth, I think Augustine was on to something. 
This, is, this, this requires such honing work as a Christ follower, right? To think about this, not just do I love God, but do I love him most? And if I love something, something second, what is it? And if I should love something third, what should that be? What should the order of my loves be? Because our order of loves, whether we know it or not, is being actively demonstrated to everyone who's watching. Most importantly, the younger people in our lives. They see every move. They hear every word. And they are critical thinkers. So what order of loves have they found? I believe there's a biblical basis for this, and we'll go through this pretty quick. First of all, the Bible affirms the centrality of love in the life of a Christian. First John chapter 5 says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. Do you see the order? In each of these passages, I want you to be looking, look for order, look for sequence, look for prioritization. It's all over. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Oh, I love First John. We got to get this love thing right. I mean, Augustine was on to something. It's because I think he took, a time, it took some time in God's word. We got to get this love thing right. Secondly, the command of Christ to have rightly ordered loves. I believe Christ alluded to this in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. He said, or the text says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Boy, he didn't hesitate, right? I mean, there's like no indication in the text that he had to even think about it for a second. First, love God. He says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. But we know how this works. To love others well requires that we love God first. Above all else in our life. So when we order our loves, he must be number one. But did you catch who fills in slot number two? Everyone else. Let me ask you a question. What has slipped in between what should be number one and number two? Think about it. But Jesus gave us the answer. Thirdly, the there's a correlation between loving God and seeking his kingdom Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroyed, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The order of your loves will demonstrate where your heart resides. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And you're like, what is he talking about? Well, people at his time had a superstition that if you had bad eyes, then less light from the sun would get into your body to eliminate the darkness that's making you sick. And so Jesus plays on that superstition to bring to them an eternal truth. What clear eyesight really looks like is seeking his kingdom first. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is why we got to get number one on our list right. Number one matters. And it's got to be God. He doesn't share. 
He says, therefore, I will tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What, those of you who, who feel like you, you live a life filled to the brim with anxiety, let me ask you a question. What are the order of your loves? He says, you, you worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, not, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Here's the key. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Having rightly ordered loves pays off. Not just here, but in eternity. Second to last, the confounding value of God's kingdom. Living this way, listen, I'm just going to say, living this way is going to make you look weird. It's going to make you sound weird. It's going to freak some people out because it's very countercultural. Even within churches. How did Jesus speak to this? He said, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And I'm thinking, what did the people in town think? Because apparently the field was sitting empty. Why did this guy just sell everything he had to go buy an empty field? Because he found something of great worth that no one else had found. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, he had and bought it. What, what explains that kind of behavior? Because they found the number one. And they were living like God's number one. They were seeking his kingdom first. It matters more than anything else. And they were actually living like it matters more than anything else. Right? Because our beliefs should translate into our actions. What we say we believe about God and his word should conform our lives to that. And that's what these people were doing. And I believe the Bible gives us some characteristics of kingdom living. First of which is in Galatians chapter 5. Where it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. No law. Now think about this for a second, okay? That if we seek God's kingdom first and he's really our number one and we're loving people well because we love him most, then these are the kinds of things that we'll be demonstrating in our life. Let me ask you a question. For those of you that are on social media, if you were to look at your past year's worth of social media posts, how much of those things would people see? Would they see the love and the patience and the kindness and the joy? Even though the world's falling apart, why are you so joyful? Why are you at peace? Aren't you worried? They'll ask. Or did they see something else? Workplace conversations, email threads, text circles, whatever. Is this what people see? Or is it something else? What about our kids? What do they see and hear you talking about, mom and dad? What's frustrating you so much? Is it all about the here and now? Or is it about the there and then? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, but Paul talking about bringing the gospel to people, he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And I love his wording here. Let me ask you a question. When you're interacting with 
with other people, your children, your grandchildren, your coworkers, your neighbors, your social media audience, which is probably a lot smaller than you think. When you're interacting with all of these people, are you bringing the aroma of Christ into those interactions? Is that what they're smelling? This, this fragrance of the kingdom that makes them want to know more? Or is it more like a bitter taste in their mouth and they'd prefer to hear less? Brothers and sisters in Christ, what millennials rose up and saw in much of us and how we were demonstrating our faith was a brand of Christianity that they declined. Because I don't think it was a brand of Christianity that even Christ was offering. And we get so hung up on the fact that they rejected it or we could start figuring out what did we do and say that contributed to that rejection. And I think it starts here. How are our loves ordered? I believe the choice we have this morning was going to require a lot of wisdom which is why the last text I have for you is from Galatians 4, because you might be tempted to think, what do we care what outsiders think? I, I, I heard that question dozens of times in 2020. Why do we care what other people think about us? We're not supposed to fear man. Hold on a second. Scripture tells us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. And this is how Paul works all the time, right? Rearrange the sentence. How do you make the best use of your time? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And you might ask, how do you do that? Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our testimony to the watching world matters because it's not us we represent, it's Christ. What we believe matters, but how we articulate it matters. And it's because the Bible says it matters. And it has to be part of our calculation. Listen. I believe the choice we have is between self-sabotage or success. You might be thinking, what do you mean by self-sabotage? Because as I look back on my own life, when all these books were being published, I own and read them all at the time and reread them again 15 years later. And boy, that was weird. Because they could have been published today. And what I saw in my own life was that I had opportunity after opportunity with precious students in the room or parents or grandparents or whole families. And I had been demonstrating to them disordered love. They heard me say I loved God most. And sometimes that wasn't even true. But even when it was, number two, wasn't always loving others. It was loving myself. And that brand of Christianity was distasteful to them. And the truth is, it should be. Because it's a fraud. I want to share something with you in closing. And I just want to, I want to tell you that I, I, was, I was very careful with it. Sought some wisdom and advice and input on it and then spent tears putting it on paper. Tears because of my own heart that needed repentance and confession. But also because I stand before you now continuing to be somebody who's tasked with ministering to the next generation and I am concerned we are about to lose another. And so I ask that you would just give me grace as you hear this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we risk displaying wrongly ordered loves when we spend more time decrying the most trivial of inconveniences we face here than we do in prayer for those actually suffering for their faith around the world. When we demonstrate more zeal for a human leader than our Lord when we reshape our schedules and spend hours, if not days, to join a political event, but neglect to take minutes to invite a neighbor to spend a couple hours with us over dinner. 
when we spend more time trying to get others to read the Constitution than the Word of God. When we profess Jesus is the ultimate solution to the world's problems, but exhaust more of our energy on ballot initiatives than personal evangelism. When we exhaust more capital on recruiting others to our political causes than inviting them to church. When we are more eager to construct hills for division than cultivate fields for discipleship. When we invest more time, talent, resources, and prayers on our child's physical, social, and athletic development than we do on their soul. When we tell the younger generation to seek the kingdom of God first, but fill our family schedules with things that don't advance the interests of that kingdom. When we tell them how important the local church is, but neglect to corporately participate in that same church when our own comfort or the offerings of the world conflict with it. When they see us make church more about what suits us than how we can worship Christ. When they hear us pray that God would use them in mighty ways in the lives of others and to make them willing to sacrifice in order to do so, but ignore opportunities to show them what that looks like because it challenges our own comfort zone or stretches our own skill set. When they see us get angry over political or societal issues but fail to show empathy and compassion to those who are victims of the brokenness of our world. When they see us get more offended over the character of our preferred political candidate being maligned than over the testimony of Christ being tainted. When they see us spend more time on constructing safe echo chambers that exist to affirm all of our own beliefs, perspectives, and conclusions than graciously engaging with and listening to those who government by taking abundant life he offers for lives that are overcommitted, overworked, and overstretched, all to attain a life filled with that which won't satisfy and won't last. Our main mission isn't to preserve our favorite traditions or elect a particular person president. It's to impress a love of God on the hearts of the next generation. And when we have wrongly ordered loves, we risk undermining that mission. My brothers and sisters in Christ, my plea today is that we honestly assess where our own loves may have become disordered. And therefore, our main mission with the next generation as given by God is being sabotaged by our own actions. If we do not do this, if we do not change course, if we do not rightly order our loves according to God's standard rather than our own, according to his word rather than the most revered words of fallen men, according to Christ's example rather than the examples of broken leaders, we will not only lose another generation to the enemy, we will be complicit in their capture. And humanly speaking, we can ill afford for this to happen. God help us to live with rightly ordered loves, loves ordered by the truth of his word and not our own way. And after saying that, I only have three applications for you, and they're quite simple. Please take some time to honestly and prayerfully assess where you might be demonstrating disordered loves. And if you want, a, if you want an idea on how to do that, ask a younger person in your life what they think. Parents, grandparents, sit down with your children and say, where do you see mixed up priorities in my life? And, and make sure they know they won't be punished with the answer they give you to that question. And if they don't answer at first, ask again and ask again and ask again. Wherever you have done this, confess it to those who have been impacted, starting with those children. And that's what some of us frankly need to do. Son, daughter, I confess to you that I've demonstrated the wrong priority. Even the smallest ones have probably picked up on it. Lastly, commit to the mission God has given you to the next generation that God has given all of us. And can I tell you, there are ample opportunities for you to do that in your home and in your church. Every week, there are holes that need to be filled. And those holes represent the lives of young ones. 
that need your investment. You see, when I recommend investment as one of the three solutions, I wasn't talking about your money. I'm talking about your time, which is far more valuable than money could ever be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. God, it's my hope that we would all leave here believing as though our time together was saturated by your word all over. Old Testament, New Testament, letters to the church, Jesus' own teaching. God, I pray that it's become clear to us all how vital this is. God, I confess to you on behalf of your church that we did not do all that we could have for the millennial generation. And they might be many, many of them adults now living their own lives. But God, I pray that by your grace, you would give us opportunities to still reach out to them. And if there are children who have crossed our paths and we know, we know that we must have confused them by how they saw us living our life, God, give us an opportunity to reach out to them and confess that to them. God, we pray for our millennial generation. Pray that you would capture them for your glory, that you would use them mightily. Because even the ones that anger us most when they pop up on our social media feed or our news channel, they are not beyond the reach of your grace. And more than our arguments against their positions, they need your truth to be made alive in their life. So may we pray for their soul. And God, I think of this new generation. It's not really new anymore because we're now graduating them out. This Generation Z. God, it's another opportunity, one that's moving by very rapidly to invest in them rightly. God, give us the will, give us the strength, give us the fortitude to do what we must to reach them, to impress upon their hearts a love for you, to act with a kind of urgency that a car on fire with a victim trapped inside would warrant. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.